Good morning. If you are a guest with us this morning, welcome to Rivertown Church. It's a uh, privilege that you would choose to worship with us this morning, and uh, we consider it a great joy that you would join us. And um, we are continuing today, of course, in our series throughout the book of Exodus. And so we're picking up uh, about a third into the series of plagues. And last week, Ben covered plagues number, numbers one through three, and we looked at how the plagues are specific judgments of God, the Lord God, the one true God, against the false gods of Egypt. This is plain and not even debated. It says so in Exodus 12 when God reminds the people that the plagues were judgments against the men of Egypt, the beasts of Egypt, and the gods of Egypt. And in the song of Moses, after the redemption of Israel, he says, you are above the gods. You are the one true God. And so we're picking up right in that narrative as we see the judgments continue to unfold against Egypt and its deities. The first of which was water turned to blood. The second one was frogs. And then the third one being gnats. Each of those representing a stronghold or a deity or something sacred to the Egyptians. And in God revealing his power with the plagues, he shows that I have control over these things. You worship something that is uh, created, whereas I'm the creator. And I can make and I can undo. I can create and I can uncreate. And this continues in our text today. And so we have to remember and be reminded as we enter into the text that the Lord is establishing his rule and his reign in the midst of demonic worship. That every power and principality that does not subject itself to the one true God is a servant of Satan himself and it is from the depths of hell. And so this is not just about the salvation of Israel, but it is about the unequivocal worship of Yahweh God, that he might be seen as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in all the earth. And so we're going to be picking up starting in chapter 8, verse 20, and we're going to be making our way through the next three plagues, plagues 4, 5, and 6. And so... If you would, please stand at the reading of God's word, starting in chapter 8, verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth." 
Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go in to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Let us pray. Lord God, maker of heaven and earth, you and you alone are the one true God. And we confess now that you have revealed yourself to us in Christ, your Son. And I pray now that your word would be a lamp unto our feet, that it would reprove and instruct us and encourage us in all your ways. May we learn to fear your name and to do all that you have commanded us to do. Would that be the cry of our mouths and the sincere earnest unction of our hearts to follow you to the utmost, no matter the cost and no matter what the voices of the world say. 
I pray that you would continue to shape us as your people, for we belong to you in Jesus, your son. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the instruction that it is for us. Please, would you have your will and your way, and would you be magnified in us and through us today and in all the days of our lives. I pray all this according to the promises of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so again, last week, Ben gave a, a phenomenal synopsis of the, three, the first three plagues, and in them, he unpacked the meaning of each plague in light of the specific deity of Egypt that the plague was targeted against. I'm going to give a very brief overview of these next three, but th- this isn't really the point of the text this morning. I think there's something much more serious going on. And it is important to know in what ways were the judgments of God directed at Egypt. And so we are going to see that, but we're not going to hopefully spend much time there. And so let's look at the fourth plague, the fourth plague that's in verse 21 of chapter 8. The plague is swarms of flies, or at least that's what the ESV translates it as. In Hebrew, in Hebrew, it just means swarms. We don't actually know what insects made up the swarms. Um, uh, many translations just use the word swarms, and some commentators believe various things. Most believe that it was a variety of insects, whereas some think it's a high likelihood that they were scarab beetles, and I think there's some validity to this. There was a particular god of the Egyptians called Kepri. And this god was um, related to Ra, who was the sun god, but Kepri was responsible for rolling the sun into the sky every morning. And the representation of Kepri was a scarab beetle. He had a scarab beetle for a face. Because they believed that just like the scarab beetle, which was also a dung beetle, would roll dung and soil into balls and push it around the earth. I'm sure you've seen that on National Geographic, or you can look it up on YouTube. It's very cool. They make these perfect round little balls. They believed that Capri also rolled the sun into the sky every morning. And so for the swarms of scarab beetles, which were venerated and considered sacred, for them to come and afflict the people is quite the contrast to their belief that these beetles were for their benefit. They also attributed divine qualities to these beetles because they probably didn't know this. This is why they worshiped it, but they thought rebirth and life from death was associated with the scarab beetle. Well, what was really happening is the beetle would lay its eggs in the carcass of another animal or in dung itself, and the beetles would be born out of that which was dead or that that had been passed through. And so it was associated with rebirth or life from death. And so to have, again, this could have been other insects, but I think the scared beetle makes sense. To have these beetles or any other insects come and attack the people and fill their homes and their land would have been a direct attack on this god, Kepri, and also the sun god, Ra. This plague also is different from the previous plagues in that 
all the previous plagues were enacted by Moses. He had to perform an, he had to perform an act to initiate the plague. This isn't true with this one at all. In fact, this is just thus says the Lord. This plague came by the very word of God. Moses did nothing except act as the mediator between God and Pharaoh. And the result, and we know this theme already, is that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And we're going to see this interchangeable phrase. In some places it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. In other places it says God hardened his heart. They're used interchangeably. And in some instances, when it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, it actually means he strengthened his heart. He made it more firm. He took what was already there and strengthened it. So Pharaoh already had impenitence built up, and the Lord strengthens that impenitence, that, that um, unrepentance. But in other places, the word used really just means to harden, to, to stiffen. And in this case, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. The fifth plague, which we see in chapters, uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, is that of the livestock being killed. And there's a lot of details we're going to revisit. Again, this is just a synopsis of which deities are being attacked. Most likely, this is an assault on, and this, is, this plague is directed at Ptah, who was a creator god. And if you have done any, any research, whether it was a long time ago in school or if you're just a curious person, um, there's a lot of overlaps with the Egyptian deities, and they, they take on different forms in time because you had regional deities, and then because of armies, because of movement, because of uh, commerce, you have people exchanging ideas, and so the deities might be associated with different things throughout history. And at one point, you had Greeks come into Egypt, and so you had the Hellenizing of some of these gods as well. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on ancient Egyptian uh, religion. So take this for what it is. It is true that all of these plagues were directed at the gods of Egypt. We know that because the scriptures tell us that. But we're just simply hoping to make a case that it's possible that these were the deities as such. And so just take that for what it is. Most likely this was directed at Ptah, who was the creator god. Ptah, however, took on a form known as the Apis bull, or the, the Apis bull. And because of that, bulls were sacred to the Egyptians. And they came to represent many important things for them, including death and rebirth. The Apis bull was also associated with kingship. So there's a lot of artwork some of this is in museums today, where the bull is standing opposite a pharaoh. And this is the apis bull. It came to represent his strength as king. Not only is the bull associated with Ptah, but in later history, it became, he became associated with Osiris. In fact, the Greek historian Herodotus said that Egyptians would not eat female cows because of their association with Isis, the wife of Osiris. But they would kill, sacrificially kill, male bulls and would eat them as a form of worship. They had great reverence for these bulls. However, they were so sacred 
that the Egyptians would not let outsiders partake of the sacrificed meat unless the carcass was first decapitated and they would place a curse on the meat before they would give it to their Hellenist neighbors or any other outsider. And so remember that. That could have been a later development, but, but I think it's an important thing to remember later in our sermon. Not only that, but these bulls were actually mummified. They would make sarcophaguses for them, sarcophagi for these bulls. And so there are burial grounds in Egypt today that have bull, mummified bulls in them. They worshipped the apis bull. And this bull represented, of course, livestock. And so it wasn't simply cattle that was afflicted, but all of their livestock. And so what does the Lord God do? He directs death at the very thing, the very figure that they viewed blessing and life from. Because in their sacrificing to the apis bull, they were consuming it as worship so that they might have life. And he brings death on the livestock. He brings death on the livestock. Like the previous plague, the Lord simply uses Moses as his messenger and he himself delivers the plague. He kills the Egyptian livestock while leaving the livestock of Israel untouched. And thus he asserts himself as the God over all creation, as the great I am. There is nothing created that has not been created for Yahweh. And he rules and reigns over all. And in this instance, we have the passive. It's like a passive phrase. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And now we get to our sixth plague, the third one of our sermon. Verses 8 through 11 in chapter 9. This particular plague is is even more grievous than the last. I mean, you can replace cattle. It's a very difficult thing, but this one afflicts people in a, in a particular way. It, it, imagine, imagine having a, a body covered with boils. You'd go crazy. The Lord sends boils on the Egyptians. And it, most sources say that this plague was directed at the god, the goddess Sekhmet, who was the wife of Ptah, Ptah being the previous God of the, the previous plague. Ptah was a goddess of healing and medicine, and there were many others. Imhotep and Isis all had a role to play in health, wellness, sickness, disease, and medicine. Some sources even indicate that there were Egyptian healing cults, a cult meaning a small religious sect, that would sacrifice people and then would burn their ashes. They would burn them into ashes. They would take these ashes and then they would throw them in the air to appease the healing deities. And so that seems quite likely when we look that this plague, unlike the previous two, puts the onus back on Moses. There's an action for him to perform. And it's this. He takes handfuls of soot from the kiln and he throws it in the air in the sight of Pharaoh, that it would become dust over all the land of Egypt, and that dust would become boils breaking out into sores on man and beast throughout all the land. Moreover, even Pharaoh's magicians, who were divine healers, 
This is true with most pagan worship across the world. Your, your diviners were those who had the knowledge of not only the divine and the sacred, but that knowledge produced, gave them knowledge of the economy, knowledge of agriculture, knowledge of the cosmos, knowledge of health. And so these magicians were divine healers. And they too were afflicted with boils. And because of that, could not stand before Moses. And so in this sixth plague, we see that the Lord alone is God over health, over sickness, over disease, and over pestilence. As the one true God, he alone can take the dust of the earth, where in one account, he breathes life into dust and makes man. And in this account, he afflicts the very ones made from dust with dust. And in this last account, we see that the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And so this, again, is a direct assault against everything that was sacred to Egypt. The Lord is making no bones about it that with every sign, he is inflicting damage to the enemy. And it's not even a game for him. He's simply revealing what has always been true, that he alone is God. And there is no other. There is no other. These things pale in comparison to him, for he is the creator. And now... Now I think we need to look at our, really the emphasis of the text this morning. We're going to be back in chapter 8. And so that was God's judgment over the gods of Egypt, lowercase g, gods of Egypt. Now I want us to look and see the division of the peoples. This is really the heart of our text this morning, these next two points. So this is the division of the peoples. In the midst of this fourth plague, so we're going back to chapter 8, in the midst of this fourth plague, The Lord tells Moses to warn Pharaoh of uh, swarms, swarms of flies perhaps, swarms of beetles maybe, that they would come into the houses and into the the houses of the Egyptians would be filled with these swarms and also the ground on which they stood. And notice verse 22, but on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. This is the first time we see in the narrative of the Exodus God specifically setting apart Goshen. If you remember in our story, um, as far back, actually this this goes to Genesis, When, when Joseph led his people when he welcomed his family into, Gen- into Egypt because of famine, and he basically made a deal with Pharaoh because Joseph at the time was well-respected, the request of that particular Pharaoh, very different Pharaoh than today, was they need to be in the land of Goshen. It was agreed upon that they need to live in the land of Goshen, which was in the northeast corner of the delta, the delta of the Nile, because they're shepherds. 
Israel has always been a nation of shepherds. And the shepherds were despised by Egyptians, completely despised. Apparently, they didn't, they didn't like sheep, and so anyone who touched sheep were unclean. And this is where Israel dwells, in this land of Goshen. And so we see specifically that on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, and that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of of the earth so he makes it clear that there will be a separation there will be a setting apart Goshen and Egypt and this phrase in the midst of the earth it can also be understood as in the land so you could take it to mean I'm setting apart Goshen so that you may know that I am the Lord in the land in the land this declaration is incredibly unique. It's really the first time we're seeing the Lord speak a word to Pharaoh about the distinction he's making. We've already seen this behind the scenes with Moses. When he called Moses in Midian, he gave him the game plan from the start. But, th but now we're seeing what's been working behind the scenes come to the front, full front stage, and Pharaoh is becoming privy now to the plans of the Lord. It's unique, this declaration, in that it's a comfort to Israel. It's a very, in a very tangible way. The Lord is with them because he's in the land. He is holding them and keeping them from all the harm of this plague. But also, this statement is a judgment against Pharaoh. In effect, God is saying, I am not distant, nor am I just the God of Israel, but all places are subject to me. All places are subject to me. I am the Lord in the land. Because most polytheistic pagan cultures, they believe in regional deities. Even in Egypt, you might have a particular deity worshipped in one city or more venerated in one city, and a different Egyptian god in another. This was common. And you could even have a pharaoh who was privy to one god and liked what that god might supply him and provide for him, and so he would make that god the particular deity of the land via his rule. And the Lord is saying, I am. I am the Lord God in the midst of the earth. It's all mine. It's all mine. And not even Egypt is exempt from my judgments. But it's all subject to him. And so a little bit of a wake-up call for Pharaoh. A little bit of a splash of cold water in the morning. This, this would have startled him, and I, I think we need to see what's going on here and, and understand that this isn't an easy interaction happening, but the tensions are rising. The narrative is building to the climax. And next, even beyond this, the Lord says something even more spectacular, even more spectacular. In verse 23, he says, Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. So he's saying, because 
I'm in setting the land of Goshen apart, this will serve as a sign for me putting a division between my people and your people. The word here translated as division, and maybe some of you, if you have a translation that's not the ESV, some of you might actually have the better word, but it, it literally means redemption. It literally means redemption. In fact, both the traditional Greek and Latin translations of the Old Testament render it as redemption. And so another way to read this verse is to say, thus I will set redemption between my people and your people. This is earth-shattering to Pharaoh. This is the first time he's hearing this. And Moses is courageously telling him, thus says the Lord. He is putting redemption between his people and yours. Again, we've known that this is going on behind the scenes. We've known what's already been made plain to Moses and Aaron. But Pharaoh is being confronted with the truth, the, the whole truth, really for the first time. We use the term redemption a lot, but we sometimes forget it, it's like practical meaning. It's um, in its economic sense. Think of having a gift card to your favorite store. When you use that gift card, you're redeeming something with equal value to your gift card. Or if you have a coupon, the coupon states it has inherent value and can be redeemed for something. In ex you know, it, it's exchanged for something. And when you use it, it's being redeemed. It's being put to use for you. So redemption signifies something being bought back. Okay? But it doesn't just mean being bought back from another person or another entity. It also signifies, scripturally, being spared from wrath. And so we can think of it as a debt being owed towards a person and the debt being paid for by another. In this way, that person is redeemed because the debt has been satisfied and they no longer owe it. This is what we mean when we say those who trust in Jesus as Lord and who believe on him as the Son of God, as the one who made satisfaction for sin on the cross and who raised from the dead on the third day, he made redemption for his people because he paid their debt, their debt to God. And in a very real sense, the Lord is saying, I'm redeeming them from your midst. And it's not in the same sense that somehow Egypt is owed something, but he's getting at, you actually are owed wrath, and I'm going to spare them from the wrath and give you what you deserve. And this is the separation. This is the division. This is the redemption at work in separating Israel from Egypt. We see wrath being poured out on Egypt, and Israel spared. Thus, Israel is redeemed. And so we now have the promise of God made plain to Pharaoh that Israel is being set apart for mercy 
while Egypt is being set apart for wrath. Again, redemption for Israel, judgment for Egypt. It's in this word to Pharaoh that the people of God have another promise, another down payment, so to speak, of the salvation to come at Passover and in the crossing of the Red Sea. And as we'll see a little later, those are little down payments of an even greater salvation to come. The proverbial cat is out of the bag now. And all because of Pharaoh's increasing impenitence. His heart is growing increasingly harder. And so the Lord is commensurate with his judgments, with these plagues. As Pharaoh's heart grows in hardness, so does the veracity of God's indictments against him. With each plague and each discourse between Moses and Pharaoh, tensions are rising and the stakes continue to increase. And all this is going to come to a head right here. And this is where we're going to hang out. In our next section, verses 25 through 27. Here, here is the point of our text this morning. Sanctification for worship. That's the title of this section. Sanctification for worship. In verse 25, verse 25 says this, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. At first, you might read this and think, Aha, the plagues are working. Pharaoh is beginning to understand. His heart is starting to soften. But we'll see that that's not what's going on at all. In truth, Pharaoh is growing more hard of heart There's no repentance from Pharaoh here. No casting aside of the idols of Egypt. No contrition before the messengers of God. No, he remains wise in his own understanding. For he thinks that he can simply submit a little to the Lord. He's like many today who want the resurrection of Christ but refuse to bear the cross of Christ. These are those who say, I will give you this much of my life and no more. I'm sure it'll be all right. Pharaoh believes that he can satisfy God's demands on his own terms. He refuses to actually repent and submit completely to the law of God. The command is clear, let my people go. And he says, maybe just have this, take a little bit. Take a little here and there. No. That's not, that's not belief. But it's continual rejection of the one true God. In verse 26, we see Moses immediately counters Pharaoh by explaining it would not be right to worship the Lord our God here in Egypt. In John Calvin's notes on Exodus, he explains that there are two clauses in this verse, and it's important that we distinguish the two clauses. It, it, again, I don't, personally, I don't think the ESV renders the first clause that well. Um, we're going to look at the second clause first and the first clause second, because I want to fo- focus more on, this, on the first clause. So the second clause of verse 26, and let me read it first. 
But Moses said, it would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. That's the first clause. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? That's our second clause. Second one first. It is true. It is true that it would be dangerous for Israel to worship in Egypt because the Egyptians would absolutely be offended. There would be many offenses, okay? The animals being used would be offensive to the Egyptians. The sacredness of some of the animals in the eyes of the Egyptians, whereas the, whereas the uh, non-sacredness of the other animals, and even just the act of foreign worship in their midst would incite anger in the Egyptians. This actually is really understandable. We don't have a framework for this, and I'll tell you why. Because we've been duped by our own culture. We've been duped by our own culture that thinks toleration or tolerance means rolling over and letting everyone have their way. Not even the worship of the one true God according to the law allowed for such a thing. There were priests in Israel who were put to death because they offered strange fire. Imagine if someone came in here in our midst of worshiping Jesus as the one true God, the revelation of the Father. If someone came in here, built a fire, and began an animal sacrifice to some pagan deity in our midst, it'd be unheard of, and we'd be angered rightly. Even Jesus was consumed with zeal for the house of his father. He drove out those who worshiped money from the temple complex. This, we read over this stuff and think, well, that's a little wild. The temple complex was huge. Imagine a, a building structure in, that took, takes up most of downtown Brattleboro. And imagine Jesus going in because zeal for the house of his father consumes him. He goes in and he flips tables over and he drives these people out with whips because he wanted to see people worship rightly. And so from the perspective of the Egyptians, at least, it's a little understandable. They're wrong, but it's understandable. And so Moses is right in saying that would we not be hated by the Egyptians? Also, Pharaoh knew this would be the case. Pharaoh knew that Israel worshiping in their midst would be unacceptable. And he knew that people would turn on them. And so this was no humility at all from, Mo from Pharaoh to, to uh, offer such a, an option. This was no humility, no surrendering on his part, no goodwill. This was him entirely seeking to destroy the Israelites. And Moses is keen to it. But the first clause of verse 26 is where we actually need to spend some time. And this is the highlight of the text this morning. So if you have been taking notes, make sure you got more space. Moses is really saying, and this is rendered better in the King James Version. He's really saying, it would not be right for us to stay in Egypt, for we cannot worship with the abominations of Egypt. This is the real reason Israel must go. 
Israel is being saved from Egypt because the Lord does indeed love them and is keeping covenant with their fathers. But the overarching purpose of Israel's redemption from Egypt is so that they would be a people set apart in holiness to worship the Lord their God as he commands. As he commands. This is why Moses says in verse 27, we must go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. We must obey. God's people must worship according to God's ways. You cannot, you cannot belong to Christ while also refusing to come out of the world. We must be holy as God is holy. This is the call for all who would belong to Christ. To everyone who would heed the call of Christ, he is saying to us, he is saying to us right now, I am leading you out of spiritual Egypt. I am leading you out of the world, but you must follow me all the way. Paul writes this to the church at Corinth, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? That was a pagan god. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, he's going to quote the prophets here, I will make my dwelling among them and will walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And then in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation 18, Talking about Babylon, remember Egypt and Babylon are these spiritual representations for the church throughout the scriptures. And so Egypt was a very real place, but all that has said and all that we have seen about Israel being redeemed from Egypt, it happened. It's historically true, and yet it's an instruction for us. It's our story too. In Revelation, John says this, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you partake in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. We, as the people of God, cannot believe the schemes of Pharaoh when he says, Can't you worship the Lord in this way? It's not too different from Satan himself when he asks, did God really say, fill in the blank. If we're going to follow Christ and truly belong to the Lord our God, 
We must fear his name more than any other. And by faith, we must set our hearts to obey all his commandments. He wants to set us apart that he might be seen as the Lord in the midst of the earth. But he will not set us apart. That is, he will not sanctify us if we continue to obey Egypt's demands. Also, here's the spoiler. This is what a lot of people, I think, in the American church today don't get. The world is going to turn on you anyway. The world is going to turn on you anyway. It's a fool's errand to try to satisfy their demands. The gods of secularism are in control right now, and every time you give a little, they're taking you with them to hell. There's nowhere to go with them. We do not need to flirt with death. We do not need to flirt with the gods of this age because our God has called us out of Egypt to belong to him, to worship him in holiness. I don't care what the world says when they say you must worship like this. Decades ago it was you must accept gay marriage and look where we're at. Not long ago, it was, do we really know if that's a baby in that womb? And look how many children are being murdered for the convenience of sex. We got to come out of Egypt. We can't live there any longer because our God requires holiness. Would we not be like Noah, who was a preacher of righteousness in the midst of a perverted and crooked generation? Would we not be like those who Jesus says in Matthew 5, have a hunger and thirst for righteousness? I imagine that if the righteous kings of Judah were here today, they would see all those ridiculous flags hanging downtown and would rip them down and burn them because zeal for their God's house consumes them. We've given up too much. We've given up too much. And the way forward, the way forward is repentance for our misgivings and our evil deeds and an unequivocal call to repentance and belief because Jesus Christ is Lord and there is no other. There is no other. I don't care what Pharaoh says. I don't care what the gods of this age say. I know who the Lord is and he will return to judge the living and the dead. We must fear him and no other. In Luke chapter 1, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin, he has this amazing prophetic word after his mouth is opened. He was silenced while his wife was pregnant with John. And after naming him John, his mouth is miraculously opened. And he says this. This is part of his prophecy. I want you to see the connection here. He's prophesying about his son, but also about Jesus. And see the connection of all the miracles wrought for Israel. All the salvation wrought for Israel. It comes to a point, and that point is Jesus. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. 
as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. All of the scriptures are for our instruction. All of this has come to a point. The story of Israel's exodus is our story. And it points to the ultimate and final salvation that has been wrought in Jesus Christ. Why? That we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This is all for our instruction. It's all for our profit. And so are we going to listen to what God has to say? Or are we going to continue to lend an ear to the gods of this age? The exodus is a down payment of and a guidepost to the eternal salvation that has come through Jesus Christ. When the Lord frees people from their enemies, from their sins, and yes, from their selves, he is freeing them so that they obey him. In Christ, we are free to obey. We are free to obey. And so our conclusion this morning is very simple. It's very simple. The charge for us is to repent. May we repent of all the ways we have entertained the world and its forms of worship. May we repent of fearing man more than we have feared God. May we refuse to bow down to the pharaohs of this world. May we give no consideration to the lies of the enemy who always seeks to question God and his authority. He continually asks, did God say? We must fight with faith. And I will close with this. Peter writes to Christians of the dispersion saying this. Therefore, after talking about their salvation, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy on us. Please. We have tolerated our Egyptian overlords far too long. I pray that you would give us backbones to stand to stand in the day of affliction, to stand in faith of your word and your promises, to give ourselves to obey all that you've commanded. We know that we can't do this in our own strength, that we are only redeemed by faith in Jesus the Christ, 
but you have brought us out that you might bring us into you. You have called us, it's so clear from your word, to be holy as you are holy. So I'm praying that you would please, please form that in us. Sanctify us for your name's sake. That you would be seen as the Lord in the midst of the earth. Lord, would you be the Lord in the midst of Brattleboro? I pray that we would fight with our words. That we would be faithful to herald your kingdom to call people to repentance, to faith, and to actually warn people of the judgment to come. I pray that we would give of ourselves, we would pour ourselves out just like you did, Lord, that we would love our enemies, that we would love them with the truth, that our love would not be defined by the schemes of this world, but it would be defined by the scriptures. Forgive us, Lord. Strengthen us. I pray that you would enable us to partake with you in the mission you have in magnifying your name in all the earth. Thank you that redemption is ours in Christ and that this is all for you. Nothing is in vain, but all this is for you, that you might be seen as Lord over all the earth. Please use us for your name's sake. Hold us and keep us in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Teach us not to fear man, but to rightly fear you. We, we want courage, strength, and boldness for the days ahead. Please grant us, your servants, with such faith. And I pray this all according to the riches and promises of your word according to Christ who is our who is ours and we are his according to him we pray all this amen amen